0: So, as you know, our theme today, directing the mind, cooling the heart. And I bet most of you could give a dumb talk on this already yourselves. <laughs> you've probably had a lot of experience as we all have with uh, heat in the heart or the mind. And I think a lot of people uh, who haven't come to the Dhamma or haven't come to some kind of spiritual practice or psychological investigation, they don't really think about what causes that heat. I mean, generally I think the automatic assumption is that it's caused by someone or something in the world. That's why we get, angry and hurt and sad and irritated and, you know, there's a very long list of the, the siblings and cousins of greed, hatred and delusion that heat up the mind um, that cause us dukkha. And it's useful to remember that the translation of dukkha as suffering is only one part of it. Certainly all suffering is dukkha, but not all dukkha is suffering. So sometimes we overlook the the more subtle versions, Um, irritation or resentment or just not right many of you have heard this before, but sometimes even after long years of practice, we forget that this, too, is um, a taint or a, a a barrier in the mind and the heart to our happiness and well-being and something that deserves attention and... Um, And relief. Relief. So um, as some of you know, I've been um, really um, moved by, impressed by Ajahn Ganha's teachings in Thailand. And he would talk every day about being happy and at ease in the present moment. And how important it is to be happy and at ease. And then the practice, like moment to moment, can be checking in, like, is my, is my mind happy? Am I at ease? And if not, why not? So this is, this is the, the noticing, taking our temperature, if you will. Um, noticing where the mind is, what's happening in the mind. And when we take our attention off of the proximal causes, you know, who said what and what I felt when, um, all of that stuff, then what's left is how do I direct this mind so that it can be happy and at ease. And so this is where the Buddhist teachings are absolutely amazing, as uh, one of the disciples of Ajahn Mahabhua used to say, the Buddha is all about method. It was Ajahn Paniwado. Just to notice when we read the suttas, how much practical instruction the Buddha gave that covers so many different circumstances. So it's not really like one size fits all in terms of Different states that can arise in the mind, there are different approaches that we can take to different things, right? So, I thought I'd just share some things from one, a couple of suttas. The first one being um, from the middle length discourses, sutta number 62, it was when the Buddha is giving some instruction to his son, Rahula. In this sutta, he lays out a number of different approaches for different mental states, different um, ways that the heart heats up to cool it down. And uh, many of you might be familiar with this sutta, but whether you are or you're not, I recommend reading it or rereading it uh, when you get a chance and it's, it's really um, sort of very realistic feeling, uh, particularly if we sort of look at some of the, the commentarial kind of description of what was happening at the time. So as you may know, um, when, when monastics go on alms round, uh, the, the traditional way is to walk in single file with the most senior person at the front and this is what, this is the way this sutta starts out. The Buddha is going to go for alms and he and his son Rahula is following right behind him. Now the the commentary fills us in that this is happening when Rahula's in his late teens, maybe around 18 years old and that Rahula at the time is and is seeing his father walking in front of him and he's thinking he's a really good looking man impressive and i look like him and then what we see in the sutta is that the buddha stops and he turns around and he says to rahula Rahula, you should truly see any kind of form at all, past, future, or present, internal or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, all form with right understanding. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. So it, it Can gives you make quite this a odor, I can't strike. hear it, it. it. And, it and I'm, I have no video for me. Okay. Somebody's having a little trouble. Are Are other people able to hear? You're okay. Okay. If you ever can't hear me, let me know. So... So, you know, you kind of get the real feeling of the situation. Um, Most of the time, if the senior monastic in front of the line turns around and talks to people, there's something up. This is not usually what happens on alms (laughs) rounds. And Rahula responds by saying, only form venerable sir and the Buddha says no it's also feeling perception mental activity and consciousness so all the five aggregates and then rahula thinks well how can i how can anybody continue on alms round and go collect food after they've been given such a kind of mm, admonition from the Buddha himself. And he turns around and he goes back to his hut and he meditates. Actually, he's sitting under a tree. And then it's Venerable Sariputta who's actually his official teacher. As different monastics, you, you may get a different teacher than the one who is either in charge or in the senior position in the monastery or one that has been a preceptor, you have your teacher. And Venerable Sariputta walks by, he sees Rahula sitting there meditating, and he tells him, You should meditate using mindfulness of in and out breathing for great fruit and benefit. So Rahula practices the rest of the day, and in the late afternoon or evening, he gets up and he goes to the Buddha. And he asks the Buddha, how is it that you practice mindfulness of in and out breathing to, to have great fruit and benefit? Now, the Buddha doesn't answer his question right away. Instead, he starts talking about various other meditation subjects or approaches to, to learn and to use. And he talks about what their value is. So he first says, I've got this paper in front of me because my memory can't hold all this stuff. So, The Buddha tells Rahula to meditate on the internal earth element. And this is where he goes through the list of all the things that are in the body, that are solid, that are, represent the earth element. you know, bones and solid organs and feces and all things that are kind of solid. And then he he tells them that the earth element in the body and the earth element outside the body is the same thing. And he says you should understand looking at these parts of the body that this is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. So the same kind of re, refraining, reframing, reframing, uh, no. Coming back to the same thing he told him in the morning. Like he really wanted him to get this. And he went through the same exact, teaching about the water element, the fire element, the air element, and the space element. And if you look at the text and you see all the things that get listed relating to these elements, it pretty much covers everything about the body. Even the space in your ears, your nose, and the urine, and the pus, and everything, right? And for all of it, this is not mine. I am not this, this is not myself. That's the first, like, series of meditations he's recommending. The second section of what he's telling Rahula to do is to meditate like the earth. Untroubled by anything that people throw on it, And he said, if you really meditate like the earth, be like the earth, then pleasant and unpleasant contacts will not occupy your mind. And then he goes through the same thing with the, other fi- with the other elements, water, fire, air and space. So the first meditations that he's telling him about causes him to see the body as it truly is, to see all form as it truly is, and let go of it, let go of identification with it, let go of clinging to it. And the second one is to see how the mind can take on these properties of natural elements and be completely at peace with whatever is happening there's no reaction so then pleasant and unpleasant contact so anything that comes into the senses sight sounds tastes touches smells and thoughts whatever comes along pleasant or unpleasant it doesn't stick doesn't stay in the mind And then, thirdly, he goes on to say, meditate on metta and any ill will will be given up. Meditate on compassion and any cruelty will be given up. Meditate on rejoicing, so this is mudita. This is, the, this is the word choice that Bonte Sujato took. So you'll see this, this translation on Sutta Central. Meditate on rejoicing, and any negativity will be given up. And there are other words for that word that he translated as negativity, like discontent and aversion. So mudita it's not just for jealousy. It's for, and it's not just when you feel like you wish you could excel in a way that someone else is excelling. It's for any kind of rejoicing over what's good in ourselves and in others. And so it helps us give up aversion and discontent. Meditate on equanimity and any repulsion, or you could say repugnance or anger, will be given up. So there's the Brahma Viharas. So he's giving him that collection to practice with for specific treatment of states of mind. Meditate on ugliness and any lust will be given up, so the unbeautiful. Meditate on impermanence and any conceit, I am, will be given up. And then finally, after, after teaching him, telling him to really utilize all these different approaches and meditations, practices, he starts talking about mindfulness of in and out breathing. And he gives them the whole um, discourse, the whole um, training of the 16 instructions and how they um, bring about great fruit and great benefit. And I really love the very last thing he says. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated in this way, even when the final breaths in and out cease, they are known, not unknown. Seems like that could keep a person busy for a while. So this is, this is like one series of the Buddha teaching, different ways to direct the mind and the idea that they have different purposes and that when we check in on our mind and we see what's happening there, then we can make choices about what we want to do to take care of it, to really understand it. And, I mentioned in the guided meditation that the Buddha, again and again and again throughout the suttas, he first has us observe, look at what's happening. We have to take it in. We have to be willing to be present with what we're experiencing, what the mind is doing. And any kind of ideas of, well, I... I've been meditating a long time or I've been a practitioner a long time and I shouldn't be feeling this way, so let's just ignore that uh, flare up of anger or lust or whatever. That's not the way. We know that, but in the moment, it can be hard to kind of turn and face it. So the first thing we do is, is look. And you see this right in the instructions of mindfulness of in and out breathing. So mindfulness is part of everything, pretty much, <clears throat> that the Buddha taught. Because if we don't have mindfulness, we don't even know what we're, what we're experiencing. If we don't have mindfulness, we don't have any clarity about what to do with it. But when we, when we practice different methods and different approaches that the Buddha gave this whole smorgasbord of, you know, techniques of not just meditation, but also working with the mind on the spot, no matter what we're engaged in, then when we gain, when we gain skill, then we can more easily pull out the right medicine. Just, you know, there are the, this, this metaphor of the Buddha as a doctor, and all of these methods that he gives are the medicine. And that we can go to the shelf of our mind and pull out which one, works, which one works for this malady that I'm experiencing right now. How can I direct the mind? And then, of course, then it's our own, it's our own laboratory. It's our own experience that we have to observe and watch and direct and modify and see how it works. How well does this medicine... We maybe need a different dose, different timing, some support from the outside, talking to someone else, spiritual friend, teacher. There's, there's all so much that we can do and we can be creative with how to work with our mind. And most importantly, to not give up. And maybe even more important than that, to be determined to look frankly at what our mind is up to. Because it's not just, oh, a flash of lust comes along and then you practice the unbeautiful and that goes away. That's important. That's useful. But it's also, we're all working with a truckload of karma that's come down from, if you will, lifetimes, And sometimes that stuff is a pretty tangled knot. And this too is something that we can direct the mind to unravel and to to tease apart and to become free of. But the, the, the real key, the first step, is a willingness to let go of our own views, our own assumptions about what's happening and about what, part we have in it, and to start to to try to really um, look at it from the perspective of mindfulness so that we have more clarity, mindfulness and wisdom, clear comprehension. This is so important because when we take up the practice in this way, we can really see a change in ourselves over the years this stuff actually works, as long as we apply it. I want to just draw your attention to another sutta um, that I found useful in the same way. And it's also in the Middle Links Discourses. It's number eight, called the Salaika Sutta. The translation usually of that title is effacement or self-effacement, so the rubbing away, the erasing of defilement. And in it, the Buddha talks about 40, he gives 44 different states, different things, including the hindrances and the noble eightfold path. And, And there's a formula to it where he starts out just talking about these 44 things in a way like, just bringing to mind others will be cool, but we will not be cool here. You know, others will have wrong view, but we will have right view here. And it goes along, you know, with all these different 44 things. The last one of which is the one I just um, mentioned. Others, maybe I'm gonna look at the text. Others who are given to their, others, hold onto their views tenaciously and relinquish them dif- with difficulty. But here, we're not going to hold on to our views tenaciously. We're going to relinquish them easily. You know, this kind of statement of how we want to live, how we want to operate. And then, so he goes through this whole list, and then he goes through the list again, kind of with this intention where you're giving rise to this thought others will be cruel but we're not going to be cruel here we're not going to be cruel here you're really setting the intention and then in the third pass through the list he talks about how to get around it he says if you have a tendency to be cruel then you have non-cruelty as a way to get around it. Like every time you're tempted, you turn away from that and you're not cruel. Every time you're tempted to take something that isn't given, you avoid it. You don't do it. Every time you're tempted to lie, you don't do it. And this is powerful because every time we go against that urge, Whatever it is, it could be something very subtle. Every time irritation arises, come back to contentment. Every time we resist that urge, that's a, that's a practice of renunciation. We're renouncing our usual habit, our usual behavior, and then we're laying in this new network in the mind. We're laying in this new way of approaching something. And we, we can experience the cooling of the heart as we do it. And then the Buddha says, you, you keep doing things in that way. Relinquishing these these approaches, these ways, these tendencies, these habits, and you see that you're actually making changes, that the mind changes, the things that used to trigger that uh, can happen, and it doesn't trigger that anymore. And finally, the last pass, it goes through He says, and now that tendency is eliminated completely. And the heart is cool. And this is all about really, really taking up practice in a very proactive way, in a very self-directed way, according to what the Buddha taught. It's so empowering and it works for absolutely everything in human life try it try it on the most intractable intractable things you know how you feel about what's happening in the world right now fears that might arise i mean covid dreams (laughs) you know whatever is coming up have you had any covid dreams I have. I'm in some situation and suddenly I realize I'm standing too close to somebody. I don't have my mask on. This is normal, right? And, you know, what is my mind doing with this anxiety, this concern? Can I find the medicine to help the mind be calm? happy and at ease, no matter what. And I I always wanna suggest that what the Buddha learned um, through those years of austerities, and we think of the mortification of the body, but it's also mental that any tendency we have towards beating ourselves up about what we didn't do or what we did do is also unhelpful. So as we do these practices, there's gonna be slippage and sliding all over the place, right, it's just natural as we try to develop new skills and change. And we just say, okay, well, that didn't work very well. Let me try, try again. Don't give up, and don't be harsh. It's like this is, this is not the way. The Buddha, what he realized is, being harsh with ourselves doesn't work. Being kind, compassionate, and firm, determined, encouraging—this is what helps. That's probably longer than my usual. I'm gonna stop there. <laughs> um, and I'd love to hear your questions, comments.
1: So um, if people have questions, The best thing is that if you click at the bottom of your screen where you see participants, if that doesn't show up, scroll your mouse down to the bottom of the screen, it'll show up. You'll have a chance to raise your hand. Uh, Under the list of participants, you'll see choices at the bottom, including raise hands, and a wonderful little blue hand (laughs) will come up next to your name. And uh, that would mean, that means you can raise your hands while other people are talking, and Sakula here is going to... uh, Keep track of the order and we'll call on you when uh, uh, whatever question is finished and you're up next. So feel free to rush to the questions and just start pushing on the little blue hands. And um, Sakula will keep it all running smoothly and um, call your name and you can ask uh, Aya your question.
0: we, We might have one or two people on the phone and I think if that's the case, and you can't like scroll to the bottom of a screen, then just jump in.
1: Yep. Um, if nobody's if it's all silent, obviously, and nobody's talking or asking a question. Feel free to jump in too.
2: And Paula has just informed us that on the iPad, it's in the upper right instead of on the bottom. If you're on an iPad, uh, the little hand will be on the upper right. Thank you, Paula for bringing that to my attention. So once your name is called as well, then um, you uh, then you can go ahead and unmute yourself and ask your question. And I'm curious, Betsy, did you mean to raise your hand there? Bonnie. No, Betsy, I was just, it looked like Betsy had raised her hand, but was it Bonnie?
3: Oh. Yes. <laughs> oh, Bonnie. Okay. I, um, I've been, um, surprisingly considering other things, um, very submissive all my life because of the way I was raised. And so I try to keep the peace
0: with everybody. And, and I'm, I'm finding I, I, in a relationship with someone who has been angry and mean, and I've just been submissive about it, I finally said something to her yesterday about every time you talk to me, you're angry and it frustrates me and I can't do this. And I feel bad now for having been honest with her. And I don't, I don't know where, where to draw the line between being honest and doing it compassionately and skillfully. and I don't so know how to go about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, again, and we have the patterns that we have and it's hard in the beginning to make those changes because we may swing the pendulum a little too far or not and we don't have the confidence immediately in in straightforwardly telling someone um, how the how things feel because we haven't practiced it before, <laughs> I mean it sounds to me like a very constructive thing to do in the case, as you described it, because mm. how will people know if we don't if we don't reflect it back and it's the way you said it, I think it sounded quite skillful. Um, me, it's like when I, you know, talking about your, your impression when she's talking to you and how it feels to you, and, you know, of course, there's no control over how someone else is going to take it and what they're going to do with it. You know, are they going to be angry? Are they going to be resentful? Are they going to drop out of my life? Are they going to take it in and think it over? And, and is it really going to, might really help them? And in any case, if you're really going to be kind to everybody, you have to be kind to yourself. And I think in some level you know that. But it's just hard to overcome all those years of conditioning, especially what comes as a small child and who knows how many lifetimes. So I think it would be good to kind of make yourself a little... um, Mantra, a, a, a something that, you know, a way of talking to yourself that encourages you to take care of yourself. You know, and and like you said, you want to be kind and wise and skillful, and that's going to develop over time. It may not come out that way every time in the beginning, but you have to allow yourself that too. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Yeah, you're welcome. The further we get into recognizing that it's not me or mine, um, we start to see this process that we identify with as us, that we actually have responsibility for keeping in line (laughs) and working with. Um, The more we see that as a process and that we see what, is going on with someone else as a process, uh, the, the less um, we differentiate between being kind to others and kind to ourselves. Uh-huh. So we, we, we really want to develop that, that ability to see how important it is that it goes everywhere, not just out to others. And, and of course, in the Brahma Viharas, when the Buddha taught us how to uh, meditate with loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, it was to all as to ourselves. So, always to everyone, self included. So, I'm, I think a congratulations is in order. <laughs> and. It's totally natural to feel like very unsteady about it afterwards, since it's so new and so counter to conditioning. But that's also—you just look at that—that's another state uh, that should be, you know, considered with wisdom and understood and and held with compassion.
2: All right, we have another question from Hilary Hartz.
4: Thank you. Um, My question is that was one of the best summaries um, or Dharma talks I think I've ever heard. Um, I'm in a sutra study class. I would really like a recording. I heard that you were recording it. I would really like to share it with my sutra group and other people that I meditate with. So my question is, how do I get a recording so I can share this the simplicity and yet thoroughness of what you presented today? Because I feel we are all struggling um, either inwardly or because of the world problems and things like that. And how to take responsibility within ourselves to bring solutions. So thank you so much. It's the first time I've ever heard you and I'm honored to hear you. Thank you.
0: That's very sweet feedback, thank you. Um, I think we've got a plan of sorts. I'm, I will talk with Sakula and Alistair about the mechanics, but I'm sure that the recording can be made available and that you can find out about it.
4: Thank you so much.
2: Also, Hillary and anybody else that's so inspired, um, we'll be putting up the address of which you can find, where you can find Aya's um, Dhamma Talks, where her monastery is. And on there, she gives weekly um, talks, weekly pseudo studies. And so it's really worth checking out her website. And so uh, we'll be putting up, a link to that, just as Alistair's doing it right now. So you'll see
4: that any minute. Okay, because I, I, I was invited through a friend, so I've never been involved oh. before. So I just want to secure the link. Thank you so Excellent. much. You're welcome. You're welcome. So the floor is
2: open to anybody that would like to ask a question or share your responses to her um, Dhamma talk. Complaints are
3: okay too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Paula, you're up next, and then it'll be Christine. So, Paula, go right ahead.
5: Hi, I I just missed the number of the sutta for
3: the first one with Rahula. Could you tell me what sutta that was from and which?
0: Yeah, it's the Middle Length Discourses, number sixty-two. The okay. longer discourse on advice to Rahula.
5: Great, thank you.
0: And be sure to read the one before it too. Sixty-one. The commentary says that's when he was about seven uh, that the Buddha gave him that teaching, and it's it's priceless. It's beautiful. So, thank definitely you. Definitely take both of those. And if you get really excited about Rahula, there's another one where he got enlightened when he was a few years older. <laughs> then <laughs> tw- 18 around 21 probably anyway go for it it'll be <laughs> it'll be a delightful exploration
2: thank you all right christine and then steve diamond so christine you're up next
3: oh um my question is having a little
0: trouble hearing you, Christine.
3: Oh, oh, let's see. I wonder if it's because of my microphone. My headphones out. Can you hear me better now? Yes. No, you can't hear me. No, we can. Can you hear me? Yes, can you not hear us?
2: Oh, Oh, she can't hear us. Um,
3: hmm. Oh, Well, well. I don't know, because I, I can't hear you. I guess I'll maybe try again in a little bit. Go no,
6: Headphones Steve.
2: All right, uh, Steve, go ahead, and we'll contact Christine over private message. So, Steve, would you like to go ahead next, and then we'll have Christine.
4: Oh, hi. Well, thank you. I just really wanted to say thank you for sharing with us today. It's, it's just delightful to hear the Dhamma from a, a, a different kind of fresher voice in a way. Um, And uh, greetings from another fellow person from Illinois. My wife and I uh, left Chicago some, I don't know how many years, (laughs) 40 or 50 years ago, I guess. But um, we hope to come down and and visit you because uh, we would very much like to
3: support uh, the uh, the Vihara. So thank you. Thank you.
0: That's
2: really lovely. And um, while we wait for Christine to come back on, I think this is a really natural place, Steve, to support you in supporting the vihara. They do have a katina coming up, so you might want to just hop on their website and look at. That's a really wonderful way to to support the vihara. So, oh, okay. So Christine Yee, were you about to? I saw your hand raised for a second there.
3: Yeah. Can you hear me this time? Yes. Can okay. You hear me? Okay. Okay, great. Go ahead. Um, so my question um, is, there is an emphasis on um, sort of cooling, I think, cooling the mind or cooling the heart, and um, I'm just wondering, like, why do we want that? Why do we want cooling um, does it have to do with like anger or irritation? So that's my first question. And the second question is where do I find the suttas? Is it online? Is there like a website somewhere? Um, so those are my two questions, thank you.
0: Okay, thank you, Christine. Yeah, so cooling, so cooling is of course kind of a metaphorical way of talking about this. Um Nibbana, the realization of uh, Nibbana is, you know, complete enlightenment, freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion, the ending of all, all irritation, all forms of disturbance, peace, complete peace, and the ultimate happiness. And Nibbana also means cooling or cooled, to be cooled. So I think of the cool, and the Buddha used this a lot in different ways, but to think of the heart as cool, it's that peaceful, refreshed feeling that comes when the anger is gone or any other source of inter, of interference or irritation or even the excitement of, you know, like getting what you want or um, passionate, you know, um, experience because there's also that heat in that and why would we want that cooling it's because eventually if we really look at the mind if we really tune into our experience eventually we start to value that feeling of being peaceful and content and happy more than you know being angry and feeling really strong or in in that you know because it's it's a harsher feeling even though we may feel some like power it's it's so destructive and it's so coarse and the same with lust you know it's these things often lead us or drive us into actions that cause a lot of trouble for ourselves and others and all of that has a lot of heat around it. So when using this idea of heat and cooling, you are on the right track. What is that heat? It can be just friction. It can be just irritation. Kind of even, like I mentioned earlier, the the idea, like, oh, I got the wrong thing from the store. You know, it's even that kind of like, oh, this isn't quite right. Or yeah, I ate that piece of banana cream pie and now I wish I didn't. You know, anything. And the, the Buddha is really inviting us to experience refined states of concentration, but also, uh, uh, more importantly, what it feels like when the heart is really at peace. And also that, to, to recognize that even in the suttas what we start to pick up on is that when the mind is cool, the heart is cool, meaning it's at peace, it's content, the, the defilements are at bay at least for a moment or a time, a period of time, that it's natural for metta to arise, loving kindness or love love that's not conditioned so it's like this is the way to being the kind of person we really want to be and this is the way that we can show up in the world in the very best way and this is the way that we can be happy and content all the time i mean really that's what happens when people realize nibbana when they when they um are able to let go of all greed hatred and delusion if you ever have a chance to be with such people you see how incredibly happy they are so that's why we want to go in that direction and it's really quite the opposite of the way the world is pulling us you know the world wants us to watch the scary movies and you know get get angry and There's a lot right now where there's there's an intentional generation of fear and hatred. So this is really going against all that. And it brings more of those qualities into the world that we really want to see develop, where we have compassion, kindness, and the ego fades. And the answer to your second question is, we are so lucky nowadays to have such open access to the teachings, to the actual suttas. And there are a few different ways that you can have access to them. Um, the most available and complete that I know of is called suttacentral.net. And it's an effort to bring the translations of the Buddha's teachings to everyone free of charge. So, suttacentral.net, you have to get a little familiar with some of the, um, the Pali and Sanskrit, uh, just a little though, if you want to read. I, I tend to only kind of play in the um, the Theravada Pali translation <laughs> section of Sutta Central, really. And, you know, all the the five nikayas are there, and you can look at different translations of many of the suttas, and you can really start to get a sense of this body of incredible teaching. And um, there are also other ways. You can buy physical books, the physical books from Wisdom Publishing uh, that that, uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi translated most of those, um, and... And uh, Donald Walsh, I think, did the, Dig in the Kaya that they have, and you know, some of us really like to actually have a book <laughs> in our hands, <laughs> and um, and those are wonderful too. And you can actually get electronic versions that you can search if you want to look something up. Like, let's say you want to understand more about you know some some aspect of the teaching and you can search and find the different ways the Buddha talked about it it's amazing so enjoy
2: all right lovely that was really lovely Patty you're up next
7: I have to unmute myself <laughs> Thank you Aya. Um, I too appreciate your uh, very skillful um, presentation of Majjama Nikaya 62. Um, in another setting I've been studying the, um, the elements and uh, so this is nice to be able to put it together uh, with that study. Um, I, I'm curious you know part of the very appealing uh, subject matter today was cooling the heart. And um, I would like to know if there's any skillful way to be present in the um, the activities of the world. As you say, there's so much that is intentionally published to uh, raise fear and uh, create turmoil that short of, Removing myself entirely from every kind of engagement, uh, which I somehow don't feel quite right about, and and yet when I do, I don't know. How do we do that? How how? What's a skillful way to somewhat engage in 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 our world and not be, uh, you know, taken away by it?
0: I'm so glad you asked. This is a wonderful challenge for us. Um, and and I I'm actually glad I get a chance to to share this little thing that I've been thinking about. It's like the Buddha gave us, like I said, many ways to bring peace and and coolness to the mind, to the heart. And when we're really in a very... Uh, strong situations, very challenging places. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of some of the women at the time of the Buddha who, whose children died. Um, you know, deep grief, being really distraught. Um, what the Buddha would do, at least as far as we can tell, oftentimes he encourages us to step back and take a broader perspective, the the, the big picture. And, and you've got that end of it. And then you also have the small, small picture of I'll be mindful and present with my breath right here in this present moment. That's kind of the small picture. That's one way, come back to that, to you know, ease the mind for a for a little while. But then we go to the big picture. And I've found this actually works. Um, I don't know if she's online here today, but someone who I know who um, came to me after her son had committed suicide and she wanted a Buddhist funeral because that was his inclination. And we talked about the way that the Buddha would approach this kind of thing, thinking in terms of lifetimes, in terms of kama and not, you know, not knowing um, what one person's purpose is or their path and recognizing that this lifetime isn't the end. And also that we've been through this thousands of times. And it, it really helped. Kind of miraculously, I think. And with this current situation that we find ourselves in, there's a tremendous amount for us to learn. We can see a very strong example right in front of us of how throughout human history people in power have created division and hatred among the people that they wish to control how how the generation of fear and anger the inciting of that gets used to their advantage and how completely destructive this can be for everyone involved including those who feel like they're gaining something from this result. And in my lifetime, I believe I've never seen the leadership of the United States do this before. I think that you might agree. So I want to point out that I'm not talking about politics here. I'm talking about morality and, and manipulation at a very high level of harm, at least the attempt to do that. So how do we engage? Well, you're, you're right, I think, to be careful about how much of the news you actually take in and monitor the heart as you do it. But the way to engage, I believe, is to really increase our reliance on the Brahmaviharas, Viharas so that we're coming from a place of love. That's the only healing that can, that's the only thing that can really heal the hatred and the division in this world. And you hear that from every religion. So whenever um, the things that are happening in the world tend to evoke in us hatred, anger, resentment, and fear, we need to notice that and come back to our breath, come back to the Brahma Viharas, cultivate love, and come to the big picture. This has happened over and over and over in human history so many populations subjugated, so many times pitting groups of people against each other, so many times really trying to incite hatred and division. I heard a um, a short clip video, I saw a video clip of an evangelical minister talking about how the leadership in his religion made this Faustian deal with President Trump and how he, in his own self-reflection, stepped outside of that and talks about how he was sitting in a meeting where the, I think it was kind of like marketing people, telling the leadership of the evangelical churches that they needed to have more fear and hatred inculcated in their people. That's how you get donations. That's not how we get donations. I want you to know. (laughs) That doesn't really work. (laughs) Maybe this lifetime, but boy, I hate to see where those guys are going. Um, If you want that link, I think it could get posted. Is that true, Aya? Okay, Uh, I think his name is, Is it Robert Schenck? Yeah. Um, It's worth noticing because this is part of what we need to understand in order to come to this from a different place. That we can use metta, karuna, mudita, and upeka to walk through the fire and to bring something really positive to the world. And that engagement is good if it's coming from a place of keeping virtue and happiness and love alive and well. And we should do that.
2: Thank you, thank
7: you, thank you.
2: All right, we have Margaret Schilling up next. Margaret.
5: Hi everyone. Hi Aya. Um, thank you so much for today. Um, I guess I have two parts to my question. That one was just a straightforward one about the. I'm sorry, I didn't catch the name of the second sutta that you um, read from, and then. Um, I guess the second part of my question, I think you answered it a little bit with Patty, but maybe I'll just say a little bit more. I was really um, moved by your talk and I think one of the things that for for some reason um, this afternoon I'm feeling a little teary, I I think I was just very touched by your compassion. It really impacted me and um, I'm really struggling in this time with my role as mother, um, there's something about uh, there being so many changes so rapidly that it's sort of hard to digest. And I find myself feeling, um, yeah, I try, you know, working with the teachings, but still feeling, um, I don't know, just a little overstimulated and fearful. And sometimes having a hard time calming myself down. I think it's having, you know, my t- my kids at home online in school at this point indefinitely. And um, I'm a therapist, and um, I'm, I'm just about to give up my office because I'm not going to be able to see people in my office for such a long time. So it just feels like there's a lot of coming apart. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about just kind of being with so much change at once and kind of a lot of deconstruction. Um, Thank you.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. So the easy one first, yes, it was um, the eighth sutta in the middle-length discourses, number eight, It's called effacement, or uh, Bande Sujato translates it as self-effacement. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And how old are your children?
5: They are 15 and 18. So the 18-year-old is um, in college from home, and the 15-year-old is in high school. Yeah.
8: I'm, yeah I'm, and...
5: Sorry. What? Oh, I was just going to say that this age feels really hard because it feels like they they, can, they know enough about the world that it it's very impactful and pretty frightening yes i was actually going to say the same thing that that this age is really
0: hard um in the in the in the teenage years it's so much about being social and being with your friends and doing things out in the world and you know kind of Moving away from, um, you know, your your tight little nuclear family, and so it is hard. And everything that you said first, first and foremost, having compassion for yourself because, of course, it's going to be hard. Of course, it's a lot to assimilate. There have been so many changes, uh, so much, so much to impact us, and yet. As we acknowledge that, we can kind of go, yeah, that is what's happening. And there's tons we can learn through this and there's tons we can do. You know, it's very important to be careful about the way we think. It would be easy, it's easy to go down the track of, how horrible it is that we're all stuck at home, that my child can't have the, the kind of normal, what do you say, normal college experience right now. And, you know, it's easy to go down the path of saying to ourselves or to each other how bad it all is. But really that's a training of the mind that we're not gonna be happy with as we go along. Everything that we do, the way we think, it trains the mind. Whether you're, you know, programming computers or you're, uh, you know, doing extreme skiing or whatever it is, anything, everything that we do trains the mind. So we get to make choices. And we want to find that balance of seeing things the way they are, which the Buddha always wanted us to do, and seeing the bright and beautiful, the potential, what you have an opportunity to do with your children now that you wouldn't have had if they weren't there in this way. And, you know, like, um, I think I saw a YouTube clip of a family, um, you know, producing some kind of musical event at home over YouTube or, you know, it's like, what can you do here you are, you're, you've got a lot of training and skill. We need to look at how we can use that in a constructive way with the conditions we have. How much can they learn about the world and the way, like I was saying earlier, the way these kinds of things that we're seeing now have happened in different forms over and over again through human history, and how we can step up, stand up for something different, for, for love, for compassion, for kindness, and virtue, which some sectors of our society right now seem to be lacking quite a quite lot. You know, we can really look at this, This will shape your children for their entire life. This is a moment in history that they will look back on. And you, as their their mother, have an opportunity to really drop in some guidance here. And it's not to put too much pressure, but to just remember that we can make small shifts that lead to a very different course over time. And you can do it.
2: All right, we do not have anybody in queue. So if anybody would like to just go ahead and share, the floor is clear for you to just go ahead and unmute yourself.
8: Uh, Telephone. Hi, it's Michael. Um, So, deep bows to you, Portland Sangha, and um, the ayahs are so dear. And I really appreciate the Dharma talk, and I love the chanting in the morning. And um, yesterday I had a lot of fire, but um, that was transformed after working in the garden before the 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 nine o'clock first sitting and um you know i went to joy but one of the things i sometimes don't remember that i found so helpful was going to the brahma Viharas during the heat of the fire can be very um cooling and helpful and i too loved your dharma talk and i hope that i'm able to listen to it again but if i can't That's fine, because everything's impermanent and arises and passes. And um, deep bows to to you all, and thank you.
0: I'm so glad you could join us, Michael. It's nice to know who's behind that little telephone icon.
5: (laughs) um, The
8: one with the moon next to it, you're the only one who noticed. (laughs) 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 <laughs>
0: <laughs> Michael used to come to our d when we had our, um, our place in town and we hope to see you again and everyone um, at some point when things change again, which we know they will.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, we kind of hang out together for the next person to go ahead and share their thoughts, their comments, their appreciations and or questions. I just want to give a shout out to Olivia Winter, who has been uh, very generously posting links to everything that we've been talking about. So if you go into the chat room, folks, you'll find links uh, that Olivia has posted to all the suttas and the Katina link is right in there. Thank you, Olivia. That's very kind. Um, and then of course, Chitananda has put in the link to the um, the uh, minister's talk that Aya was talking about earlier. So, okay, we have somebody, Holly. Thank you very much for popping in here. Go ahead.
6: So thank you. Sakula and Portland Friends of the Dhamma for pulling this together. My local buds, some of you I know. It's wonderful. Um, I, uh, I had a question about location of Chitta. So my experience lately has been this sort of interesting and wonderful movement of where when I go, oh, the heart center where is that it's kind of part of my body scan it's sort of vaguely um, like chakras kind of that kind of scan Mm -hmm. so sometimes it's back against my spine like it's like oh don't get to me it's back there behind my spine and sometimes then when I meditate well and I'm kind of inviting safety and bravahara as it comes and floats kind of in the middle of my torso. And sometimes it's up at my throat, which is kind of new. And sometimes it's all somewhere in between here. So any, any kind of thoughts or comments you would share about this sort of energetic uh, uh, movement of the heart center or the chitta?
0: Thank you. Well, I think it's, it's- most of the time useful, I think, to observe the energy in the body and also to encourage it to expand. Um, I don't think it really matters very much where it is or trying to locate it. Um, I think that the main thing the Buddha was trying to encourage is that we, we use the, the felt sense of our energy, of our, of our life force energy, as a way to calm us down, as a way to have a very pleasant, unworldly pleasure, pleasant experience that then conditions the chitta to go into samadhi and become more and more still. So I like the way Ajahn Jayasaro translates samadhi and stillness flowing as lucid calm so it doesn't it doesn't matter like where it is uh where your your mind is placing it what probably is more useful is noticing the sensations that arise in the body as we're becoming more calm and in another set in another instance when we're heated up when we're um in any which way upset and we feel in the body the presentation of that emotion, that's very useful. Locating it, just noticing where it presents, it doesn't matter where it is. We, we see where, where this intensity shows up um, in the body and then asking questions and, and making observations about that felt sense, that experience. And, and the purpose of that is it establishes mindfulness. As soon as we ask questions about this tightness in the chest or this this dryness in the throat or this pain in the belly or whatever it might be, this rock in our stomach, whatever it might be, as soon as we stand in a sense, in a, in a In a mental sense, we stand looking at it. Uh, As soon as we are paying attention to it and asking questions about it, we we are established in mindfulness. We're observing. And we want to bring wisdom to that, see its impermanence, it's changing. And as we observe it through its cycle of arising and ceasing, we know that we don't have to get so involved in every feeling that comes along. In fact, we don't have to get so involved in any feeling that comes along. And then we can be, like the Buddha said, you, know, you know that a feeling is just a feeling. And you can feel pleasant ones and painful ones and even those that are neither pleasant nor painful without being attached. Detached, feeling them Detached knowing them for what they are, arising and ceasing. And he often uses this phrase of, this, this feeling comes or this thought comes into the mind, but it doesn't remain. You just let it go by. And the other day I was listening to, um, you pro- many of you probably have heard the recordings of Ajahn Pasano giving a METTA retreat years ago and he was talking about mindfulness of in and out breathing, and how as we are working with the breath coming in and the breath going out, and we see how it comes and it goes, and it comes and it goes, and then a feeling comes and it goes, and a thought comes and it goes, and it's the same thing. You just let it go. Now you might say, well, that's pretty different than directing the mind for cooling the heart But it's not really. It's directing the mind to stay present and observe arising and cessation and knowing that that's how everything is here. Everything, everything in samsara. And every time we cling or we crave or we get stuck with it, there's dukkha.
2: Alright, Alistair, you're up next.
1: I was just going to uh whoops, turn off our speaker. Um just not how do I turn on the speaker? Do I
6: just
1: lower it? Yeah. Um sorry about that. Uh I had a question back. Of avoidance, but just in your, uh, your last answer, uh, pick up an image of um, you know, feelings coming and going of a, a properly social distanced mind, you know, <laughs> six feet only, and perfect acknowledge <laughs> you're going by, but I'm going to actually catch whatever you've got, you know, <laughs> pleasant in my mind would be all the thoughts get <laughs> to six feet from each other. Um, and... Uh, so I thought I'd that first. But my, my particular um, chronic practice challenges is, is avoidance. So it's like I'm not always that aware that I'm veering off course. So my heart doesn't get and particularly particularly wound up. I just find myself somewhere else. And i avoid avoiding whatever. We can't Fearful at all. Well. Um can't really make
2: that
3: one's saying very well.
1: Maybe Uh can you hear me better
0: now? It's a little bit better. There's kind of an echo so it makes it hard to hear. Okay. Um, can you turn your sound
8: off?
0: It might have to do with um, the abundance of technology. We're having
2: a little bit of technical difficulty
0: here. Can people hear us? We can hear yes. you fine now, Sukula. And Aya, uh, you're Sukula. frozen. <laughs> oh, yeah. that <laughs> happened screen.
2: I can't hear you.
0: You can't hear me?
2: I can hear you. Okay. All right, we're going to try it again. Um, for some reason, we're having some difficulty on this. So we're going to try that again. I'm going to turn off. Okay, Alistair, go ahead. Switch
0: places with each other. Alistair, use Sekulis.
1: I feel very... <laughs> in- yeah. Hey, how do I
6: turn <laughs>
0: This is so precious. Alistair has been such a great support in getting our technology sorted out. And here we are.
1: (laughs) Okay, can anyone hear me?
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Things we'd thought of did not include this. Um, So, I don't know if you missed the whole thing, but um, my particular question was around um, avoidance. So you talked in your Dharma talk about the various antidotes to various types of feelings. My particular skill is in not feeling that and veering off somewhere else. And so I don't know if there is a, a particular antidote to reflect on or element that... Um, because I'm not always really aware of what I'm avoiding, just that, hey, I'm pointed in a different direction now.
0: Yes, of course, it's like delusion. It's very hard to know how to deal with it because you can't see it <laughs> We're not seeing it. Um, it's, it's a place where um, the people in your life can help you. Um, you can invite them to help you if they see it happening. It's one of the reasons that spiritual friendship is so important and that the Buddha emphasized it so much. Because it is hard to see a lot of these things that we're doing ourselves. And if, if we already have given the invitation to someone else and that when they tell us we don't react defensively, then they might keep doing it. And it gives us a chance. And then we start to get better at catching and, and identifying the cues or the clues that it's happening. So there's probably something that might be a bit more subtle that you'll notice in, your, in yourself, in the way you feel, uh, in your dreams, um, in just maybe a bit of a heaviness or some kind of clue, That there's something that's gone unnoticed, unaddressed, and then if you start looking for it, you may find it. So it's it's interesting because you know just like delusion, avoidance. Of course, when you know you're avoiding, you know, like many many of us are masters in procrastination, for example. When we know we're avoiding, then we can just, you know, hopefully muster up the gumption to use non-avoidance and Mm -hmm. throw ourselves into it and really take it on. But when we don't realize it, then, you know, we can start to, you know, put on our Sherlock Holmes hat and go looking for the indications. And one of them that I talk about sometimes when we talk about delusion is, you know, if you if you have some idea that's totally black or totally white, like you really, really um, dislike someone and you can't think of one good thing about them, you know that you're suffering from delusion. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing in this world. Everything's got good and bad involved in it to some degree. And the opposite is also true. How many of us have fallen in love? We can't see one negative quality in this person. Give it a couple years. And then, you know, but you you can see what I mean. There's delusion at work. And so we start to collect the indicators, the, the clues. And then we have our little repertoire of clues, a certain feeling, a certain sort of funny reaction from somebody around us and then we can use, start to use that to really understand what's going on with ourselves and then looking at why. Why do I want to avoid this? And and another great um, kind of form or formula that the Buddha used was looking at the gratification, the danger, and the escape. So what is... The gratification in avoiding this. Well, I don't have to feel this crummy feeling. I don't have to look at this uh, thing that I really don't want to work with. And then what's the danger? Well, we can start developing our our uh, repertoire of you know memories and experiences of where that ends up, and it's not really good. Um, and then and then what's the escape? you know, the escape of turning towards it, first noble truth, I'm going to actually look at you, unpleasant feeling, um, tangled mess, you know, I'm going to look at you and I'm going to be present with the clinging that makes you be able to survive. We're going to put an end to that. (laughs) So those are some approaches you might try
1: Thank you. I guess I have to relinquish this seat again now, right? Okay.
2: (laughs) All right. So once again, anybody would like to go ahead and unmute themselves and just ask a question or share your thoughts, your experiences? Love to hear from you
6: I had a question. Um, One, uh, the Dhamma talk was so helpful and clear. And um, I also really look forward to being able to listen to it again. Um, So I was kind of, I was reflecting on the part of the Sutta you shared about um, not self and also in light of, some of the things we had talked about, along with um, caring for ourselves. And I was wondering if you could speak to kind of the process of taking care of ourselves and caring for ourselves without, um, while trying not to over identify with ourselves.
0: It's a very good question um, because there are these two different ways of talking about. And, and the Buddha identified these two different levels. One is the conventional level, and the other one is the the, the unworldly or spiritual level. And of course, on the spiritual level, as we develop, then we um, eventually, ultimately, stop identifying with self at all. All idea of "I am," as the Buddha pointed out in one of the one of the practices that he was offering to Rahula, meditating on impermanence, brings us to the point where the conceit "I am" falls away. This is this is one of the five fetters that falls away right at the end when we reach Arahantship. So you can tell that thing is pretty, pretty tenacious. That underlying idea of a self, "I am." So that's that letting go and and seeing the truth of that that's on the the spiritual level but on the conventional level of course we say um you know it's important to take care of ourselves or the buddha used examples like you're going to say uh, this is what happened in my past life that he remembered or you know it's like this this conventional way of talking this this isn't a contradiction just kind of talking at two different levels. And so when, what's interesting about the question you're asking, Ryan, is that the, the farther we get along in the, in the path of letting go of that ego identity or clinging to that ego identity and seeing kind of through it, seeing it as an as illusion, the more we take care of ourselves. It's, it's, it's like the love for ourself as a process, this, this process entity that's alive and breathing and walking around. And, you know, the Buddha said, look, you can see that there's something there. It's not like there's nothing there. It's, itself. it's a self, it's a living being. Um, and then we take compassion on it. We take compassion on this body. We take compassion on this mind that so often acts in such a childlike way and uh, i was reading one of the poems of the enlightened bhikkhunis the other day and it starts out this body i carry around is like having a child it's always wanting something you know and i often see the body like this the body needs to be taken care of as if as if it were a child and the the sort of, sometimes I call it the more primitive part of the mind is the same way. It's like a child. It reacts in, in kind of very basic, um, almost animalistic, well, probably very much like animal mind, you know, and, and it needs guidance, and it deserves compassion, and some firmness, and lots of loving kindness, and so... It's, it fits together. It really is um, not, to, not separate, this idea that we let go of the ego identity and take care of this body and mind, all from a place that's much more informed and wise and calm. And of course, none of us, unless we're fully finished with our work or are there all the time, there are going to be times when we find ourselves totally caught up in the primitive mind, in the knee-jerk reaction, in the conditioned response that's got its dangers and it does have its escape. So that's the way I look at it. Thank you. Do you see me leaning, I'm leaning around the camera to see your, your face. <laughs> Depends on where your little square shows up. And then you move around sometimes. <laughs>
9: where
0: are you?
2: All right, who would like to share next or ask a question? The floor is yours.
9: Oh hi, hi. Hi, I, uh, I guess I have a question. It's more of a, uh, I guess it's off the topic we've been on. Um, uh, I'm grateful to uh, have the opportunity to be here and, uh, um, you know, try to find some positive things from COVID. And and this type of format is one of those things. And I think there'll be other goodness coming from this once we get through it all. Um, different ways of doing things. Um, The question, it's it's more of a curiosity thing. I was was just curious um, after being around um, over the years, different uh, meditations and applications of those, um, and more specifically um, guided meditations, uh, group guided, uh, individual guided meditation, um, not guided group meditations and individual meditation. Uh, I was curious um in for Buddha or in Buddha's times, did he offer guided meditations or were guided meditations offered during those times um, i his teachings it seems everywhere you look in his teachings there 's different applications of meditations obviously uh, and I recognize this too as being such a key to um the the practice for me. But I'm just curious because uh, guided meditations are uh, different. Not that any of my meditations are exactly alike, but it's a whole different way of uh, come in, coming into the meditation. And, uh, uh, and I've, I've had some uh, speakers that give; they're known for their guided meditations, and it's just a different um, um, feeling of, of getting somewhere. And then, and it's, there's movement. There's more movement. Uh, in a guided meditation for me, than I feel for individual. Though, just curious. Thank you.
0: That was a very lovely question. Um, yes, I think the Buddha did give guided meditations. In fact, the text, if you, as you read the sutras, and you start to put yourself kind of in in the space um, where they must have been. Spoken kind of as best we can. There are certain passages that you can really get a sense were guided meditations. And I feel like the, the stock sort of description of the way the Buddha taught the Brahma Viharas, um, we use it as a chant. Um, you know, uh, I will abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, and so on. That's a guided meditation. And the whole thing, if you if you really use it in that way as a guided meditation, it's very lovely. And I think that's, that's what the Buddha intended. And also, even all those places in the suttas where the Buddha is asking those questions about, now, know, uh, is the I permanent or impermanent? Is what is impermanent pleasant, pleasure, pleasant, or dukkha? Is what is dukkha self or not self? When he goes through all those questions and then all these people get enlightened, I believe that was a guided meditation where you're really deep in yourself answering this from an intuitive place. When we just read through it, like a house of fire, uh, we're not really taking it in and, and feeling the answer to come from our, the depths of the Dhamma and the intuition. It's all in here in the head. But I think what he was doing was a guided meditation so that people are really contemplating. And, and I'm sure there are other examples where, you know, you don't get that result of suddenly there's, um, you know, well, in, in one case, a thousand people who becomes our haunts. You know, <laughs> you don't get that uh, by just kind of like reeling off the, the the words, you know, it's, it comes from a deep experience. And that's what I think you're identifying with guided meditation. And, and I'll also say that sometimes I give myself guided meditations, And it may sound a little weird, but it actually is very effective. And it's good to kind of have a sense of, well, when in my practice, like you you were listing kind of all these different ways, right? We can can meditate by ourselves quietly, we can meditate together quietly, we can meditate, et cetera, et cetera. When when does the mind stand to benefit from taking one approach or another? Sometimes if we are too, uh, let me say, sometimes if we use guided meditation a lot And we don't go into silent meditation. We just kind of stay at a certain level and we don't go deeper. Sometimes the mind just can't get down into some kind of stillness on its own and guided meditation can carry it there. So it really is understanding what the situation is and then using the right medicine. And fortunately, you try one, it doesn't hurt anything if it's not quite getting us there try another one it's okay the side effects are non-existent (laughs) in terms of what could be harmful i think so um it sounds to me like you know you have um the time probably and the experience probably that this covid thing does have its upside you get to stay home you get to Use time in a productive way and uh, limit the, the interruptions. So keep going.
2: <laughs> and just so that to make clear that everybody might not have seen, uh, Chitananda has posted a link to a Dhamma talk that Aya has given recently on this very topic. So if you'd like a little bit more um, explanation, a little bit more support in, you know, practicing in this way, she will be sure to catch the, in the chat room, the link to her recent Dhamma talk. So that's very helpful. That was really lovely.
0: I'm glad Aya Aya Chitananda is keeping track of all this. (laughs)
2: yeah between her and olivia everything seems to be covered (laughs) that's lovely all right anybody else would like to pop in here please feel free to do so Actually, I'm going to pop in here real quick with a very short question. I uh, when, when I find myself taken off guard by somebody's reaction to me, I realize that being taken off guard and feeling anxious, maybe hurt and confused, I realize that that might be my own misunderstanding of the reaction of what this person meant. And I, and it could also be that they were just having a moment and having a knee jerk reaction toward me and their own little bit of irritation comes forward. And that is uncomfortable for me. Whatever's the truth there. When I find myself taken off guard and I'm hurt, what, Brahma Vihara or or element, let me put it this way because it came up, that question came up for me when you were talking earlier at the very beginning. What element might I call on, like water or air or fire or earth, to kind of just help cool the, I, I know that either way it doesn't matter, but I am hurting right now. What element might I call on? Or would it be an element? Would it be a Brahma Vahara? What could help me in that moment?
0: Well, I think you could use whichever element arises to the mind. Because that's the one that you'll relate to the best.
8: Mm
0: -hmm. You're going to go to an element. You know, it might be water, it might be air. But whatever element comes to mind, they all kind of wind up in the same place but to making the mind like water, making the mind like fire, making the mind, whatever it is that's unaffected by this. But then it's also true that you could um, use the Brahma Viharas. So, you know, simile of the saw, they, they come, the bandits come and they start sawing off your arms and legs. And the Buddha says, if you know, the thought of, Hatred arises in your mind, you're not following my teachings. And so, like, you know, the metta should be there, or at least the upeka, to see that we're all owners of our kama. So it's like, you know, it's really, it really depends on what feels like the the mind will benefit from. It's not, it's not necessary to have a, oh, this is the one I have to use. In this case. And then, of course, there's always the chance that whatever this person said, and you might be thinking of a specific example where what I'm about to say does not apply at all. But, you know, a lot of the time when um, someone's a little irritated with us, or like you said, some reaction that seems unexpected and may be coming, well, obviously coming out of the blue for us sometimes it can reveal something. And, I, and I'm, I'm sure that you already, you already know this, but I think it's useful to say anyway, to remind ourselves like um, when Ajahn Chah would say, if someone, you know, criticizes you, uh, they call you a dog, then look to see if you have a tail. Well, that's of course also an important piece. Nope. <laughs> um,
5: <laughs>
0: there you go, yeah, <laughs> a tail. Okay, I'm not a dog. It doesn't matter. Um, I also like Ajan Amaro's SCP. Someone else's problem, you know. And 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 it's okay to feel that with it, without the without any kind of aversion behind it. It's just a reminder to ourselves that yeah, I've said uh, how many dozens of unskillful things, uh, reactions or. Maybe it's hundreds or thousands. I don't know. Let's go back lifetimes. I'm sure it's millions. <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, we're not all at our best all the time. And they um, can be projecting, especially if you're leading a community. You um, get, what did Ajahn Chah say? I get to be the swap bucket or the garbage bin. Or
5: the <laughs> <And> toilet. So, <laughs> What? Yeah,
0: the toilet, it's, it's, it's all, all of these things are part of the landscape in this, in this situation. And, and, the, and so what's the base, what's the base message or, or opportunity, you know, to really be able to observe what it feels like, not discount that, uh, recognize that that hurt is there, and to be able to be compassionate about that and also look uh, very frankly at our own behavior and then to recognize that this person is suffering in some way. There's some kind of dukkha there. So compassion can be the one that arises. Um, Equanimity could be the one that arises. And I think that when we practice, I really think it's important that we practice these things. This is what practice is for, on the cushion or When we have, um, when we're not suffering from dukkha, learning how to feel the Brahma Viharas and use them, learning how to use mindfulness in all kinds of situations. And then we can easily pull that medicine off the shelf and apply it, or even it jumps off the shelf, the right one, the right element arises and... And we feel that cooling of the heart.
2: All right, so that the floor is open. Um,
6: I, I have a question. Um, so sometimes I can. Um, I can like intellectually have the compassion for the person who has hurt me, but it doesn't. And I can restrain myself from saying anything, um, harmful, but I'm not really feeling compassion and I'm not really free from the hurt that I'm feeling. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So I think it needs a more, uh, 360 degree spread that compassion so that you're giving it to yourself as well. Um, And I think the more we are able to acknowledge that we do feel hurt and whatever idea about ourselves or whatever desire we have of the way we want people to perceive us or, you know, what. Whatever might be mixed in there is acknowledged, and and it's a process. You know, the first immediate reaction. I mean, if you can keep from saying something that makes things worse, and you can observe how they're feeling and how you're feeling, that's a that's a a pretty already developed uh, ability, and acknowledge that. Uh, I remember Ajahn semedo talking about how that first kind of came to be something he put attention on when he was starting Chithurst Monastery. And, you know, working with people with all different kinds of issues and and trying to get uh, something going in England. And he said one day there was this older lady who was helping at the monastery to get things going. And she was doing a lot. She really had, you know, good intentions and all that but she's also you know kind of annoying and one day he realized he yelled at her and he and he really it it really kind of shocked him i think um why am i yelling at this little lady i'm supposed to be the abbot of this monastery and have you know things under control at least internally and um at least that's kind of the impression i got and he he said that He had to learn, he had to learn how to observe what other people were, not just what they were saying, but what they were feeling, what they were experiencing, and also what he's feeling and experiencing at the same time, without reacting. And this is mindfulness on steroids. And that's what we need to develop. And so you've already come a long way if you can do that. And then, yeah, you walk away and there's hurt still there. And, and the other thing to remember about feeling is that just because we understand it doesn't mean it's going to vanish right away. Um, anger is a really good example of that because all those chemicals are coursing through your body and it doesn't just poof. And because we see it, it takes time. And it's also part of the practice to observe it. Um, you know, kind of fading and going away. And and sometimes it's a very skillful means to just turn the mind to something else. If you already know you've got a sensitivity around something, someone says something that triggers that, you know, the stuff our mother has said to us a hundred thousand times can uh, fall into that category even after they're long gone. And, you know, so something something gets triggered and you know what it is but it's still that pathway is still there in the mind and then you know sometimes the most skillful thing is just to turn the mind to something else it's like okay yeah that's there but i'm gonna listen to this chanting that i love i'm gonna go for a walk in nature and look up at the trees and and it's okay it's not like you're really you're not suppressing and you're not trying to jump over you've already processed this thing you know, enough. But now we have to turn the mind. And this is what I see when the Buddha talks about in the Anapanasati Sutta, in the mindfulness of in and out breathing, when he talks about gladdening the mind. You know, he first has you look at the state of the mind. And who knows what that is? It could be depressed. It could be, you know, whatever it is. And then he says, gladden the mind. So we're going to change the mood. We're going to switch the scene. And that's also okay. And, and and mainly, you know, don't be shocked by the stuff your mind comes up with or the feelings that arise. You know, it's like this is we're living this human life. All this stuff is possible. Um, even, you know, like not that long ago, sometime in the past year or so, I I saw some you know how you're you're online and suddenly some image comes up that you didn't expect at all and I got over, not overwhelmed. This incredible flush of lust came through, and I'm like, "Wow, look at that!" It was very uncomfortable, and it, and if I had allowed myself to go, like, "Oh, because not supposed to feel that. Why is <laughs> that <not> going to help?" <laughs> um, and, and the image kept coming back into my mind. So what did I do? I, I did the, the unbeautiful practice. And it worked. The coolness came. But don't be surprised whatever comes up. I mean, we've got all kinds of old comma. Everything that comes up in reaction to something is old comma. It only comes up because things happened in the past and it got, that pathway got created. I mean, you know, anything we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, um, we can't make sense of it unless we've encountered it somewhere before. We're not going to have a reaction to it unless we've encountered it somewhere before. So it comes from the past. It's old come up. And therefore, we don't have to buy into it. And what we want to do is interrupt it. Change the past go somewhere else from there, so that the future is different, and we can.
2: All right, so the floor is open.
4: I have a question. Um, so different part of meditation And that is sometimes, I'll say when I'm lucky and I'm not in so much in inquiry, um, I'm very peaceful. Usually it comes from deep sitting, often after several meditations. um, Or I get just uh, out of space, out of time, disillusion of the body. I can still sense my breath. Um, Talk about that a little bit, if you would.
0: So did you say while you're walking or while you're sitting?
4: While I'm sitting, while I'm sitting. No, I couldn't do it while I'm walking. No, while I'm deep, deep inside (laughs) myself, deep inside my being. um, What I have obviously gone inward and I have obviously let go of the inquiring mind. And, um, and there's.
0: That's great. And you were going to say, and there's.
4: I I was just trying to fill in for you. So I I was just wanting some. um, I don't see it as an escape. I see it as as deep practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, if you had any comment around that.
0: Well, I think it sounds like, um, like you're on the right track. That is good. That is very good, and um, there are more stages of letting go that are possible. So Mm
5: -hmm.
0: just just keep that kind of in the background of letting go more, and we also what we know about deep meditation is that. It can be really. It's very wonderful, beautiful, um, healing. Um, it gives us a, a kind of a, a feeling of uh, insulation around us when we when we come out and we're going around through the world. Uh, I think we react differently because we've had that time in deep meditation, mm-hmm. and the most important aspect is come when we come out to reflect on Dhamma. You know, we see over and over again in the suttas that we go into deep meditation and, and when we emerge from deep meditation that's when we're most able to experience insight through reflection on truth. And so it's it's both. You can you can go deeper by letting go more and you can also use that time when you come out of it to, to really investigate dhamma.
8: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, that's when the, the best opportunity is, is available. And then appreciating uh, how your whole system feels uh, the rest of the day or for days sometimes after sitting and, and having those experiences. Yeah. The main thing about anything that we feel we're gaining in the practice is that if, we're, if we still have dukkha, we need to keep going. Uh, regardless of where we think we are on the path or how much we've learned, we've got to keep going until we're fully awakened. And that, that helps us to keep all of it kind of in context in perspective and then we don't get carried away by whatever we might feel we've had happen or something it's like okay keep going
4: oh yeah plenty of life is full of dukkha I'm not saying that I don't have my share I'm just saying I was. we hadn't talked about these other states of meditation also so I was just trying to bring that into the conversation thank you
0: Yeah, you're welcome. Actually, um, in the Suleika Sutta, the beginning part, the number eight in the middle-length discourses that I mentioned before, the whole beginning part is the Buddha talking to the monastics about their ideas of what they've gained in states of deep meditation. He goes through all eight, the jhanas and the four immaterial states, and, and each time he's like, you think you're rubbing away your defilements, but you're not. You think you're practicing effacement, but you're not. This is how you practice effacement. You have to look at all these states of mind that are happening when you're not meditating. And it's like this is, this is uh, not to discourage deep meditation, but it's to encourage us uh, to recognize that it has its place, but it's only one of the eight of the noble eightfold path, and um, we need the other seven. And you know that. I'm yeah. not telling.
4: You. Yeah, beautiful. This
0: wonderful opportunity.
4: Beautiful <laughs> reminder. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, we have a question
2: from Andrea. Andrea, go ahead.
3: Hi. Um, Hi. Oh. Hi, Hi, everyone.
5: I'm sorry, my mom is doing a little bit of worship, and um, um, yeah. But my question is really short. Um, in the beginning, you said that uh, um, uh, suffering is part of dukkha, but not all dukkha is suffering. So I'm curious, what what did you mean by that? Yes, that
0: when we're suffering, it it's I mean the when we, when we hear the word suffering, we're thinking about the pretty extremely discomfort, extremely, extremely uncomfortable times of life when we're really, really feeling a lot of um, painful feeling or distress, and certainly that's Dukkha. Dukkha covers that. Whenever we're experiencing suffering, we are certainly experiencing Dukkha, but We can experience dukkha in a lot of other ways as well that are much less intense. So not all dukkha is suffering. Some dukkha is just grumpiness or irritation or I didn't get my way. I lost my toothbrush. I, you know, the car didn't start. My mom wasn't as happy for me when I got this, thing that happened as I wanted her to be. Whatever it is, right? It's also dukkha. So just to to be clear that when we translate poly there's always decisions that have to be made about which aspect of this term are we going to put forth in the translation. And I mean, you know, you're bilingual. You know that you can't always translate a Spanish word into an English word and get the get the full impact of it, the full sense. So that's the problem. So that's all I was saying. Suffering is is one way to translate dukkha, but so so many other words can also be used in that way. Thank you. You're welcome. It's like sometimes you have to have a whole paragraph to describe one of these terms. And it's interesting to look at how Pali and Sanskrit are spiritual languages. They have words for mental states on the spiritual path. And English was not designed, it did not develop in that context. We can, we can do business great, uh, you know, handle money, whatever, you know. I mean, What? Oh, we can do engineering with English, but spiritual (laughs) states? not so much.
2: (laughs) Okay, the floor is open again. Who would like to pop in here? While we wait for some brave soul to step forward, I will, um, Chitananda made a correction for me. I earlier had said that she had posted a link to a Dhamma talk that I gives more explanation to what she was talking about, whatever it was at the time that she was talking. Um, but it actually, she posted a link to a sutta. Uh, so you'll find that correction in the um, in the chat, and Linda Ward has a question, Linda, go ahead.
3: Thank you and
7: thank you, aya. Um, yeah, I just have a question. I feel like I maybe missed one thread of something um, and just in thinking about what what I should make of all the things that the Buddha told Rahula, Rahula first before he answered. You know, I heard, I heard some of that, but I, my mind is making trying to make more of it, and I just don't know um, if there's just something I missed or not. So uh, I'm just curious.
0: Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that the Buddha didn't just answer his question about mindfulness of in and out breathing but clearly the buddha knew that earlier in the day rohula was you know feeling um like this was his body (laughs) and he's you know apparently liking it um and that he wanted him to really get that uh that practice of working with the body as uh, not me not mine not myself and then going into the elements, well, let me put it this way. He, he talks about two different ways of using the elements. And then he talks about the Brahma Viharas. And then he talks about using the non-beautiful to deal with lust. And then he talks about impermanence to eradicate the conceit I am. And through all of this, what I think we're seeing is a, is a very particular teaching to his not just I mean it's his son but to him this is a his his student too his you know this this person who was actually making a lot of progress and needed to understand and practice these specific things in order to awaken and then of course a few years later voila and that sutta is very nice. You see all the devas coming together. They know that Rahula is right on the edge of awakening. And the Buddha has sensed to that in his meditation. And he goes to Rahula to tip him over the edge into arahantship. And it's lovely. Okay. So, you know, one way we can look at this is how can I use these these practices? Where do these apply in my development? What am I what would really move me in the direction of nibbana in this list. Another way to look at it is the Buddha knew what Rahula needed to work on. And so he gave him the step-by-step list of what he needed to develop in order to get to that place of not having that conceit, I am, which is like right at the end, right at the edge. And then mindfulness of in and out breathing, finally he answers his question. So, you know, the Buddha was a very, very skilled teacher, and he kept people's attention. And if he had answered his question on mindfulness of in and out breathing, all this other stuff would have come as an afterthought. How much attention would, how much real serious attention would Rahula given it? But since he's like waiting for the answer to his question and he gives him, you gotta do this, and you gotta do this, and then you should do this, and this is gonna help you with this, and that's gonna help you with that, and the Buddha knows he's been experiencing lust. The Buddha knows he's been experiencing probably other things in this list, right? And then he comes to the punchline, as the Buddha usually does, people are going, they're just waiting, <laughs> he has these ways. of. <laughs> Getting you hooked, and then it has really good results thank you yeah
7: i it really felt like a you know a not self lesson, but I just didn't know if those other things sort of threaded in there. Um, um, thank you. that was really helpful.
0: yeah, there's more that we need. Um, we need to deal with you know these other ways that. Yeah, it's the uh, self-arising, but it's not so easy to see that connection when you're angry. Got to get some metta in there, cool that, cool that heart off. I so much appreciate being able to spend this day with you. What a lovely thing to do on a Sunday. I really, um, I really honor and rejoice over your practice, and want you to have every blessing. and kind of thinking about this day, um, our chance to meditate, hopefully doing some walking meditation too and reflect upon the Dhamma, this is a priceless opportunity. And we're so fortunate to be able to have this available to us. So I just want to encourage you in every possible way, to be kind to yourselves and to, you know, get to know that primitive mind and give it all the best guidance you can and um, keep moving forwards to awakening because that's where you're going. I was very inspired once when one of the monks at Wat Pananachat For me, it might have been Ajahn Jayasaro, but I don't really remember. And they said, as long as you're practicing, according to the way the Buddha said, you will awaken. The sure thing. We just have to keep going and helping each other along the way. And what's really beautiful about it is it's such a lovely life lived in this way that it doesn't really matter how long it takes, in a sense, we get to enjoy the benefits all along the way, no matter what else is happening, we have this refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So I think we'll uh, chant the sharing of blessings. I think you're going to see it appear on the screen in a magical moment. (laughs) There we are. Would anyone like to make a dedication to anyone? Just feel free to unmute yourself and... um, Anyone when you'd like to particularly include in the blessings. Lauren Daniel and
6: Lilith and myself. Okay.
2: William Welsh. Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: Yes. My dad, my mom, Lola, and myself. Mm -hmm. Misty Miller. Yes. Okay, so in anyone else you bring to mind, of course, they're included. I'm moving a little bit so I can see the screen. This version, I've been chanting these same chants, but all the books are a little different. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces Celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana. In every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, May darkness and delusion be dispelled. And then we'll do the closing homage. It's coming. It's coming. We know it's coming. There we are. The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one. The teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The blessed one's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha.
2: Aya? Yes? I would like to, um, to take leave. So we have a practice here at Port and Friends of the Dhamma to always thank the uh, Venerables uh, with three bows, um, just in gratitude and recognition of the um, teachings. So if everybody would like to bow together, bow, bow. bow and thank you (laughs) thank you very very much and we will look forward I'll talk to you soon about uh, doing this again sending out another invitation this was really really lovely I thank you very much for sharing your dhamma with us today
0: it really is my
2: pleasure So if anybody sorry, if anybody would like to unmute themselves, feel free to unmute yourselves now just to say goodbye and thank you. and Aya jump in there if there's anything more you would like to say as well.
3: Thank you, thank you, thank you.:
2: <laughs>
3: <Aya>. Thank you.: <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: Bye.:
5: Yes, thank you so much.
0: You Wednesday. <laughs> Hi, thank you. <laughs> lovely to see you all. <laughs> You're welcome, puppy. <laughs> wow.
5: you?
6: Hi,
2: I uh see you Wednesday.
0: All right. Take care, everyone.
2: Thank you. Take care.
0: Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit
6: org slash donate.